Chad, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want you to find the book of Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be at tonight. And uh, if you're new to the Bible, Philippians is in the, in the New Testament. It's going to be kind of a small letter uh, hidden in. Uh, there's going to find like Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians is where you're going to be at, Philippians chapter 3. As you're turning there, um, I grew up playing football, America's greatest sport, and uh, anybody. And so anyway, I just had this coach in high school, and, and he was that coach that could just motivate, man. And, and I loved this coach. And so I remember like the first week, uh, we we're about to play this team from a town called Sulphur Springs. They're a bunch of corn-fed people out there. They were really big. Anyway, and so he had convinced us in the pregame that we were about to go out there and dominate. And so, like, I remember, man, I was all juiced up, jazzed up, ready. Week one, we're about to go out there. This is going to be a, a, you know, 16-0. and 0. We're going to the state playoffs. Never done that in school history. And my coach comes in. He's like, man, I had a dream last night, and we're all like, yeah, what was it, coach? What was it, you know? And he's like, I had this dream that there was a storm raging. And we're like, what was the storm raging? And he said, they started coming down lightning bolts and thunder, and you know what was on the tip of those lightning bolts? We're like, what was it, coach? Tell us what was it. He said, it was helmets that were maroon and white, and the White House Wildcat, he went on just to rally us, and we were like, ah, and we ran through a brick wall, and we went out there. It was awesome. And then we lost by like 40 points. <laughs> and it just seemed like next week we're watching clips from like Saving Private Ryan, the beach scene, you know, and he's telling us these stories. And, and it seemed like, man, he would just motivate us, but we went like two and eight and didn't even win the spot for the playoffs. It was terrible. We were motivated, but we never won. And I share that story with you because that's a picture of a lot of y'all's faith. Like, like you, you come to a place like this, or, or maybe you have your source of inspiration, and, and you get motivated, right? And, and you got your guy, or you got your gal, and, and maybe it's a podcast, maybe it's a, a platform like this, or maybe it's a YouTube person that you listen to, and, and man, they motivate you, and then, and then you have this version of faith that's all about getting motivated to go out and be the best you, and then you get out on the field called life, and you find yourself losing. And what will happen is if, the, you, if you apply this logic and think that you're going to stroll up into eternity and boast whatever you accomplished in this life as a reason for God to let you into heaven, it doesn't work that way. Like the Bible's going to say a lot of really, really difficult things for us to wrestle with when it comes to our goodness. Like the scripture says things like this, that no one is good, no, not one. The scripture will say things like this, you on your best day, you and all your works of righteousness, in the original language, when it, it translates into English, that your works of righteousness are like filthy rags before God. In the original language, that's the Hebrew word for dirty minstrel cloths. Like This is bold language. You on your best day, making your bed, getting up before your alarm goes off, saying yes sir, yes ma'am to everybody, reporting to the boss before he has to demand the email that was sent for the update. You sent it in. Everything's on the, you get cut off and you sing it is well with my soul on 470. I mean, everything's going good. You on your best day like filthy rags before God. The scripture's gonna say things about your heart. 
like, like they're just hard to deal with in our, in our culture because of the, uh, of the strong currents of virtues that go on in our culture and the philosophy that we believe in as Westerners. It's going to say things that kind of collide with, with our upbringing and what we learned in school, like your heart is desperately wicked and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That there's a way that seems right in your heart, but in the end, it doesn't work out for you. And so a lot of us, we come in here and we think that if you get motivated enough, then you can go out and you can be good enough to earn your way into salvation, but it doesn't work that way. If you're taking notes tonight, I've titled this message, Work Doesn't Work. Work doesn't work. And here's what I want you to see tonight. I want you to see that Paul is going to call us to lose religion so that we can gain Christ and we can know him. Paul, he's like the architect of Christianity, and he's going to call out the religious heart that is inside of every one of our chests here tonight. And he's going to do that by calling out the religious folks of his day. See, we have this tendency that we brought in here, whether you believe in Christianity or not, we all have this tendency that we brought in here that causes us to do certain things so that we would feel more superior over other people. And so we'll say, well, I, you know, th this is how I operate, and I'm not as bad as that person, and, or because I gave money to this panhandler, or because I give money to this organization, or because I don't use these words around these certain people, therefore I'm good and I'm better than somebody else. And we have this tendency towards religiosity inside of all of us tonight. And so it leads us oftentimes, and what has happened historically in humanity is that people have sought to add to what we call the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus is the only way to salvation. But we have a hard time believing that because we have a hard time wrestling with, you know, I don't have to do anything to get to heaven. Like, that's just hard to believe. It just doesn't make sense in our minds. But God's ways are higher than our ways. And anytime we add something to the gospel, listen, we water it down. And anytime we try to add to the gospel, we subtract salvation. So, Paul, he jumps in Philippians chapter 3, and here's what he says. Starting in verse 1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice. Now, now, this is a word that is used just so often throughout Philippians. Like, Philippians is the greatest concentration of the usage of the word joy. Like, a lot of people say that Philippians is all about joy. No, Philippians is all about Jesus who gives you joy. And so Paul's going to remind us, finally, brothers, you got to rejoice. Whatever's going on, choose to, to have joy in Jesus. He says, rejoice in the Lord. For to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. He's all, I want to remind you of some things. He goes on in verse 2. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the dogs. Now, in our culture, this doesn't really make a lot of sense unless you grew up around a junkyard because in our culture, like, we like to crossbreed and get, like, the perfect labradoodle that doesn't shed and so cute, so smart, and then get, like, the little Snookums Chihuahua mixed with, like, a Pomeranian, a Pomerawa, whatever it's called, and we get all of these things, and we have dogs. We, we like to get them in bed with us. We like to buy outfits so they can go trick-or-treating. We like to do all of these things with our dogs, but not in this culture. See, in this culture, dogs, they were considered, like, possum. Or they were considered like raccoons. They were varmints. They were just kind of, you know, scavengers. And, and people really didn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't have old Roy or Chow Chow back in the day, all right? They weren't spending money on these sort of things. And dogs were outcasts. And so when Paul says, beware of the dogs, he's talking about a group of people that he's calling out and insulting a little bit. This would be the modern-day equivalent of like a four-letter word. 
It's like a Christian cuss word. It's like, beware of the dogs, Paul's saying. He goes on, beware of the evildoers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Again, he says, rejoice, that's the word, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. What Paul's about to say is that like, like when it comes to morality and religion, I'm like LeBron of morality, all right? I'm the goat. I'm better than anybody else. And he's about to give his defense why he's better than anybody else. And, and he's specifically still calling out whom he calls the dogs. In verse 5, he goes on. He says, here's my resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, which means he was flawless, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. You want to know if I had passion? I went that far. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. Look, what Paul's saying is that my resume when it comes to religion is perfect. This religious stuff, all, all of the added things to try to earn your way into heaven, like, like I've got it down. I'm, I, I've been motivated by the right people. I sat underneath G Gamiel, we find in Acts chapter 5. That, that was like the Harvard of rabbis, all right? I sat underneath his instruction. Brother taught me some things, all right? I got it going on. When it comes to being motivated to be the best me, I'm better than anybody could ever be because I'm good. I'm flawless. I've got it going on. But here's what I learned, Paul said. Work, it don't work. Point number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. Lose religion. Lose religion. Religion, just to get us all on the same page, is man's attempt to get to God. It's my works and my goodness and my abilities to keep the code, to obey the law, to follow the path. To execute all the rules. And, and Paul, what he's trying to prove is that salvation doesn't come through religion. He's saying salvation's not by ritual. It's not by race. It's not by rank, tradition, religion, sincerity, legalistic righteousness. In Paul, he's calling out the dogs. The dogs historically are the Judaizers. This was a group of people that would follow Paul in his ministry. And when Paul would preach the gospel that Jesus is the only way by which man can be saved, these Judaizers would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we agree with that, but you need to add a few things to the equation. The, the, the Judaizers, or the dogs in this case, they were like, if they had an equation, it would be like, yeah, you got to get Jesus, but then you need to get this other thing too. Then you're going to be all right. Jesus plus something equals salvation according to the dogs or the Judaizers. That they had this thing that I just call code Christianity. You ever, heard, you ever heard of code Christianity? You probably experienced it if you've ever been around church. Code Christianity refers to like, like you get Jesus, but then you got to know the code. You know, like maybe you go to a church and, and they're like, hey, we're going to preach Jesus, but if you wear your hair a certain way, see, we got a code around here how you're supposed to wear your hair. And if you don't wear your hair the right way, you don't belong here. It's called code Christianity. You, you grew up, maybe you've been to a church. Like if, if, if you show up here and you've got tattoos, look, we're going to preach Jesus to you. 
but, but you're going to need to cover that up, all right? It's the code. Like, we just don't, we don't really believe that men's and women should have ink in their body, right? You know, they're like, if you don't wear a suit to church, then you may not have as much Jesus as I got. It's the code Christianity. Y'all ever experienced this before? And a lot of you, the reason why you left church for a season is because you experienced really the oppression of code Christianity, where people tried to add to the gospel, and they said, hey, if you want to know Christ on the next level, then you got to know the code. And so what has happened with a lot of us is that, is that we have swung the pendulum over here. And so we've invented our own version of the code. And so, you know, maybe you grew up where tattoos were bad, so you went out and got a tattoo of a Hebrew word, of course, right? You got like some Bible word and you had it inked up, you know? And, and then you started like reading Crazy Love or some sort of book like that so that you could speak the code. You had the right pocket. You were listening to Groeschel, Furtick, MacArthur, The Porch. You had the right blend of everything, you know. You had some like motivation and, and you had some hype, but you also had like theology. You throw in some Piper words. Who knows what those are, you know. And you got the code. Maybe you're learning an instrument and you, you know, you got skinnies on, no more baggies, right. And you got the, and this is what Christianity is, right? You, you drink coffee at post-coffee if you're in Lee Summit, whatever it is. It's the code, right? And, and, and what we have done is that we have cast judgment upon people for creating code Christianity, all the while unwittingly creating our own code. Because listen, inside of every one of us is a dog. And what I mean by a dog is somebody that wants to add to the equation. And Paul, he's calling out the dogs of his day who barked that you got to add something to the gospel. See, see Paul was a, a mailman, and he liked to deliver the word of God. And y'all know what the number one threat to a mailman is? It's a dog. And, and a side note, these dogs, they would bark at Paul and say, you need to add a little bit of this or a little bit of that. that that's, that's too much grace. That's too much mercy. You're watering down. The word, they would, they would judge Paul and say that. You need to add this. You need to add this. I wonder what dogs bark at you when you share the gospel. The other day I was at Mill Creek Park with this thing we call Awaken. Maybe you should come this weekend. And, and there were some dogs at the park. Let me explain. We were standing there, me and three of my guys, and this guy rose up. Brother was hostile, man. He comes right up to one of my boys and he's like, hey, I was told I was supposed to talk to you. And he's got his fanny pack on that says dime bag, and he's got his blunt in his hand, you know. And he was so aggressive, and he was charging up my boy, and I, I let it play out for a minute, and I was like, hey, man, hey, whoa, whoa. And I stepped in, and I just said, hey, hey let me ask you a question. And I, I said, hey, when I say the word gospel, what does that mean to you? And he's like, I don't know, truth? I was like, yeah, yeah, what else? And, and he, he gave me what else. I said, well, the gospel means this. He said, why the F didn't you tell me that? And he was blowing me up. And he was hostile, and listen, he was like a dog that was barking at the mail that I was spitting. Some of y'all think, I ain't never had no dog bark at me when I shared the gospel. Maybe it's because you hadn't delivered the mail. And so Paul, he was a mailman delivering the word of God, and sometimes when you deliver the word of God, dogs, they come out and they bark. And the dogs are saying that you need help. Excuse me, the dogs are saying that you need to help Jesus save you. The dogs are saying that, you know, Jesus, he's done most of the heavy lifting, but he may need a little spot of morality. 
He may need a little spot of experience in a church service. He may need a little spot of you memorizing some things. They were saying that if you really want to be a Christian, you got to fill in the blank. Now, for them, what they were saying is that you've got to be circumcised. Now, um, that's why Paul says, you know, beware of the mutilation. Uh, What they were saying is that if you want to become a Christian, you've got to go through Jewish customs, which made all the Greek men shiver a little bit because they were adult males that weren't circumcised on the eighth day and uh, forgot about that. But they, the, the Christians, the early Christians, they fought to preserve the integrity that Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And these Judaizers or these dogs were saying that you got to look good. You got to clean it up on the outside. You got to get it together, so to speak, and you got to look good so that you can be accepted by God. Y'all ever felt that way? Like you, you got to look good? You got to clean it all up? Uh, when we were playing football, one of the other things that we did was our coach gathered the team together on Thursday before the game on Friday. And he would have black shoe polish ready. He would have car wax and rags ready. And, and he would have already had our uniforms washed. And we would come into the field house and, and he had instructed us on how we were to polish our black cleats. He had instructed us on how we were to wax our helmets and make them all look good because he knew that if you look good, you play good. But the problem was we weren't good. Like, we looked good, right? We were out there, I mean, shoes black, helmets shining, losing by 35 every night. And that's a picture of religion. And I'm calling you tonight to lose religion. I'm I'm telling you, it's not you got to clean it up on the outside and then God will accept you. It doesn't work that way. And a lot of us have bought into this mentality that if we look good, God will accept us. And we're adding something to the gospel that doesn't work that way. I wonder if you were to to die, just kind of work with me. If you were to die, right, like right now, let's say we all just... Something happened crazy, right? And, and, um, and we all were, were standing before God, and, and we just were kind of like, you know, one up at a time, and we're watching everybody, and, you know, and so I'm up first, and, and uh, God's like, hey, man, um, why should I let you into heaven? You know, and I give my answer, and then, and then, then your number gets called, and you come up. I want you to think about it. If, if you were standing before God right now, and he, he said, hey, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell him? Just think about that for a minute. Like, just between you and God, you're standing right there. For, why should I let you into heaven? What, what comes to mind? Now, listen. If anything came to mind other than trusting in the death And in the resurrection of Jesus, as the reason why he should let you into heaven, uh, you're wrong. And you're not safe. That we have this tendency to to think, okay, if I stood before God and I said, God, you know what, I've I've been a good person. Like, you see all them back there? Like, I came to paradigm with that guy, and I know I'm better than him, right? Like, we think, okay, so we compare ourselves. I, I've been a good person, or, or God, I, man, you know me, you know my heart. He's like, yeah, that's the problem. That, that God, you know, God, you know I've tried to obey you. And we would just go down the list and run down the resume of our religion. But God would say, hey, I told you to lose religion. Because religion is all about your successes and failures to try to get to me. And it ain't about you. 
You're not the hero of your story. And if you think you got to muster it up together and be good enough and work, listen, work don't work. You got to lose religion. And in this moment, like that hypothetical moment, if, if, you, if you say, hang on, God, I got, actually got, I came to Paradigm with my religious resume, God, and you, and you actually pulled it out in front of him. You said, God, I, I went to Peru. I sponsored a kid with compassion last week. God, I, uh, I've done all these things. Like I, I've really, uh, um, I've worked hard in life. God, you, you know how, how, how much it was, you know, I was working at Harvard to get, you know, that job. And, and I, man, I got to let this Fortune 500 company, I was the CEO, God, I did it all. And listen, nothing will matter on that day except Jesus. Nothing. And if you are putting your hope in something other than the sufficiency of Christ, you're adding to the gospel which subtracts salvation. So listen, if you come here tonight and you've trusted Christ and you trusted his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sin, then the hope that we cling on to and that we stand upon is that you will be saved by Christ alone. And nothing else that you can add or take away from that. It's all because of Jesus. And again, so many of us have come in here so frustrated with, with the version of Christianity that we've experienced because we, we maybe had a, a taste of, of a church that was notorious for adding to the gospel. And it's so frustrating when, when this happens. So on behalf of every church experience you've ever had, I just want to apologize. If you've experienced a Christianity that was code Christianity where you thought that you had to add something in order to be God's child, it doesn't work that way. I mean, that's as crazy as going to Capitol Grill, ordering the, the best T-bone steak you can order up. Those people know what they're doing. Then the waiter brings it out to you. It's sizzling, looking so good, medium, medium rare. And then you want to say, hey, could you bring out some ketchup because I need to add it to this. That way to be like, how insulting that you want to add to the chef's finished work. You're just going to run it. And it ruins the sweetness and the savoriness of salvation when you try to add your good deeds. And it's insulting to the chef, God, who cooked it up. We need to lose religion. I think at the root of adding, or at the root of, of our adding things to salvation is control and pride. It's control and pride. And I know for me in my experience, I, I've, I've fallen victim to this. Like here's what I know, that men will mess anything that's good up. And, and I've done the same thing. Like, like I've fallen victim to, to wanting to add some extra rules and stuff because I can, I can abide by the rules. And so that makes me feel more superior than somebody else. And so I remember stepping into ministry and I got sidetracked by this little dog inside of my heart that was barking that you need to memorize some things and you need to attend some things and you've got to get it all together if you want to be accepted by God. And so I started kind of getting my chest out a little bit and have a little bit of a swagger spiritually, looking at people saying, why can't you follow Jesus like me? And then I began to notice that my heart was growing hard towards people, the very people that Jesus loves so much that he died for. And see, my problem was is that I forgot I was a prostitute spiritually, and so I became a Pharisee. That I forgot from whence I came. I forgot the grace that God gave me. 
And I started lording things over other people, and I became religious in my heart. And God revealed this self-righteousness inside of my heart. And listen, most of us are unaware of self-righteousness. And so it may be a good exercise if you've been tracking with Jesus for like three weeks. It don't take long for you to forget you as the prostitute and you become a Pharisee. It would be good, a good exercise for you to ask yourself, am I priding myself in my following of Jesus more than I'm celebrating the work that Jesus did for me on the cross? And we need, to, we need to lose religion. See, I think a lot of us, we come in here and we, we, we know that God's love is unconditional, but we, we treat his love like it's conditional. And so we think that we've got to work hard to stay saved, you know? Like we come into a right relationship with Jesus by grace through faith, and then th- we think we got to go out there and grind or we're going to lose it. But I got news for you. You can't work enough to earn salvation. You you can't do enough to keep salvation, and this is good news, that work doesn't work, because salvation is a free gift, therefore, you can't lose it. So I want you to think about it like this, like if, if we were to go swimming, I want you to imagine you, me, some other people, we're in the swimming pool, and, and the water represented God's love. And we, we both in, we just wading in the water, we wading in the love of God, you know, we just wading around. And I see you over there, and you just resting in his love, man, you, you feeling good, you know, it's nice. And then you look over at me, and I'm sitting, I'm, I'm chopping that water, man, I'm trying to, I am just, ah, I'm just swimming, all this stuff. You're like, Chad, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm trying to get more water on me. I need more water, you know, and then I'm looking at you like, you don't have near as much water as me. And you're like, yes, I do. I got the same amount of water as you. Why do you think the more you work, the more you're loved? See, we work not for our salvation. We work from our salvation. And some of you are sitting over there and you are chopping water and chopping life, trying to get more of the love of God, but you can't get more of infinite and then others of you are so still that you don't forgot you in the pool. You ever done that? You know, it's a cold pool. You're like, if I don't move, I'll be all right. <laughs> and in this metaphor, you are so still in the love of God that you forgot you're even loved. Because you're not moving towards Christ. Jesus said, don't, don't be still in my love. He said, follow me. And we got to learn the balance, and we've got to live loved. And the way we live loved by God is we got to lose religion. Paul, he goes on in uh, verse 7, and here's what he says. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. That word rubbish, you could circle that. It's kind of a key word, U- unique to this place in the Bible. It's the Greek word skubala. More on that in a second. He said, I count them all rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Point number two, if you're taking notes, write this down. I want you to lose religion. And I want you to gain Christ. I want you to gain Christ. Paul, he uses this accountant language. He says, you, you got to lose these things. You got to reckon those things dead. And you got to gain these things. 
He said, when, when you consider those things lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, he, he's like, man, when you live in that, no price is too great to gain Christ. Like, like he, he says, all things are rubbish. Again, this word rubbish is the Greek word skubala. And, and it literally thinks, don't think like Downton Abbey, like some British person saying rubbish. You know, don't think that, all right? I want you to think in the Greek, this is the word, um, it, it literally is translated as excrement. It's literally uh, translated as like, like the scraps that you throw out for the dogs. It, it's, it's translated as, as human excrement, or it could also be translated as dog excrement. And Paul, what he's doing is he's, he's saying that, that the added religion of the dogs, he's saying it, it's scubala, it's rubbish. He's saying if anyone tells you that you've got to have a second baptism, you've got to speak in another tongue, you've got to pray with beads, you've got to speak in a special sacred language, uh, you, you've got to go to a certain city in the world, you've got to dress a certain way, you've got to listen only to this music, you've got to wake up at this time, you can only do these things, you dress this way to gain Christ. It's dog scubala. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And we need to lose religion so that we can put on Christ and gain him. Like Paul, his life was radically changed, y'all. Like, like the more you get to know this brother, the, the crazier his story is. Again, that, that litany of, of his um, you know, resume of, of being religious and from the tribe of Benjamin, all of that stuff helps us historically understand that Paul has status. That brother was an influencer. And when he chose to follow Christ, he literally considered it all loss. But what have you sacrificed for Christ? What is the thing in your life that, that you've left behind so that you can gain Christ? Some of y'all, that's marijuana. Some of y'all, that's, that, that's uh, sleeping in. Some of y'all, that's a, that's a group of friends that you've had to distance yourself from. Others of you, you, you've relocated from other parts of the country and you found yourself here because you needed to get away from places of influence. Others of you, you put off the fear of rejection. Others of you, you put off sexual immorality. What have you sacrificed so that you could gain Christ? It's hard to think about that, right? Like, what, how much is God really asking of me? God will only ask you, to give the same amount that he did. So take a deep breath. He, he won't ask you to give more than he gave. He gave everything. And so I want you to think real quick, what's ultimate in your life? Like, like what would be that thing if God knocked on your door and said, I'm gonna need that too? You'd be like, mm, I'm, gonna need, I'm gonna need you to go pray about that, God, all right? <laughs> like what's that thing that, like if you, if you lost this thing, you would be utterly devastated. What's that thing that you run to? Another way of thinking about it, what's that thing that you run through to find your, your significance? Maybe some of you, it's, it's the neighborhood you live in. It's the last name you carry. It's the clothing you wear. It's the job you got. It's the amount of money that hits your bank account every two weeks. It's the people you roll around with. It's the seats you have at Arrowhead. It's whatever. What is the thing that gives you significance? And that thing just may be an idol in your life. Now, when I say idol, don't think like totem pole. Don't think like, you know, statue that you bow down to or Zeus or something like that. Here's what an idol is. An idol is anything that you make ultimate in your life. 
Tim Keller, a famous author, he said this, that an idol is usually a good thing that we make ultimate, that we say, unless I have that, I am nothing. So for some of you, it, it, it's, the, it's the thing, like it's a relationship, right? And you've made that relationship ultimate. Uh, for others of you, it, it's, it's something like a, it, it's a, it's a six-pack. It's your body. It's, it's what you do at the gym. And, and you made, man, once I can bench press this, once I can be that status, then I'm going to be somebody. And you've made something that's good ultimate. For others of you, it, again, it, it's your money. Money's amoral. It's not wicked. The love of money is wicked. But, but you've made money, and if I get that, then, then I, I put that as an ultimate place. And if you set anything above God in your heart, you're setting up your heart for disappointment. If you set anything above God in your heart, you're setting up your heart for disappointment. And the greatest enemy to your salvation is the thing other than the cross that you cling to. And if you want to gain Christ, man, he's got to be your all. Do you cherish Christ like, like when you speak about your relationship with Christ, is it littered with romantic language? Like have you ever said, man, I delight in God? Have you ever said, Jesus, man, he's my treasure? Are any of those adjectives in your vocabulary when you describe your relationship with Jesus? Jesus, he said this in Matthew 13. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And he said, which a man found and he hid, and for joy, not begrudging submission, not so that he would go to heaven someday, not so that he would just make it through and raise good kids, and not so that he would be a moral person, but for his joy, he went and he sold everything, all that he has, and he went and bought the field. Like this guy that Jesus is talking about, he's like, man, when, when you come into a right relationship with God and you have that opportunity, man, you bet the farm on this thing. But some of us, like, like we can't appreciate what Christ has done for us because we're so satisfied with the trinkets of this life. Like if you can't see the sun, man, a nightlight is so compelling. If you can't hear and feel thunder and lightning, fireworks are like, Wow. And if you can't see the glory and the majesty and cherish Jesus Christ, then the trappings and the trinkets of this life will always be enough for you. John Piper, he says this to the question, I, you know, I, I, I just feel like I, I'm not there yet. And he says that maybe this is your issue. He says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied it's because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world. And here's the quote, your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. And he goes on to say that Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. Like maybe you've been nibbling at the table of this world so long that you've lost your hunger for God. Do you cherish Jesus? Do you have language like Paul that says, I want to know him? I can consider it all rubbish compared to gaining Christ. I want Christ more than I want sex. I want Christ more than I want pleasure. I want Christ more than I want that new handbag. I want Christ more than I want comfort. I want Christ more than I want health. I want Christ more than I want luxury, food, stability. Is Christ your true treasure? 
Is he everything to you? I wonder when given the opportunity to savor Christ or nibble on sin, which one do you do? It's just a nibble. Do you truly want to gain Christ? Some of y'all sit there thinking, man, I, I do. I do, but what do I need to do? I mean, I've been following Christ, just like just kind of examining things, checking things out. I've been changing my ways, and I want to gain Christ. I want to count those things as, as rubbish, but how do I do that? Well, Paul, he goes on in verse 10, and here's what he says. He says, that I may know him. You can circle that phrase. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Point number three, and finally, if you're taking notes, write this down. Know him. I want you to lose religion, gain Christ, and know him. Know Jesus. That the way that you consider all things lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ is that you lean into your relationship with Christ. This word know in the Greek, it could have been translated from um, three different words in, in the Greek. One that they could have used was this word for, for truth. It's called doxa. Doxa is a Greek word that literally means like hearsay. Like I heard, you know, I heard about Jesus. Or I heard about this or that. Uh, they could have used, uh, Paul, he could have used this word episteme, which we get our word epistemology. This is like, you know, like the equivalent to understanding um, and, and being able to make sense of things. But Paul, he doesn't use doxa, he doesn't use epistemate, he uses this word gnosis. And the word gnosis in the Greek, it, it, it's hard to translate into English, but it literally means that you, man, you've experienced it. Like, like it, you, you've, been, you've been in it, right? You ain't heard about it from somebody else, you ain't read about it, but you've experienced it. And the way that we cherish and treasure Jesus is that we gnosis him, we know him. See, there's a difference between knowing about something and actually knowing something. Uh, let me explain it this way. I had the chance to go to Niagara Falls a few times. And when you go to Niagara Falls, man, it's amazing, y'all. Like you got this, this giant Niagara River that is overflowing on you know, these falls into this other part of the river. And you got the Canadian side, you got the American side. And, and you can get up close to um, the river and, and you can actually like walk out on this bridge and you can see it. And it's kind of safe and calm up there. You can get up close to this guardrail and you can see where the water's coming over and falling down. You can hear the falls. But we had this opportunity to get on the Maid of the Mist. They give you this rain parker. They put about 80 people on this boat, this deck boat, and then they drive you into the falls. You can see a picture of it right here. And so I'm on the Maid of the Mist right here. Man, I'm, I'm in the midst of the falls. And I'm not just knowing about the falls at that minute. I'm knowing the falls. I'm like, hey, falls, good to meet you, right? I'm getting sprayed by the mist. I can't hardly have a conversation with people because the falls are roaring, and I'm in the midst of the falls. And I share that with you because Jesus doesn't want you to doxa him. He doesn't want you just to have hearsay about him. You're never going to cherish Jesus if you just cherish him through somebody else's experience. Jesus ain't trying to epistemy him. He ain't trying to have you systematically understand everything about him. He wants you to gnosis him. He wants you to know him. See, there's a difference between knowing about something and knowing him. Do you know Jesus? Some of you think, well, how, how do I get to know Jesus? Well, the same way you get to know anybody of significance in your life. My wife and I, man, we've made this commitment to try to be an example for so, so many people. And so we, we've tried to really work hard at our marriage because we want our marriage to mean something. 
We don't want it just to be something flippant that we just throw out like, like a lot of people in our culture or like what I've experienced growing up. And so we've worked hard, and so in the public, we try to make sure that, we're, man, we're, we're representing one another well, representing the Lord well. But, but the, the only reason why we can portray us, ourselves as strong in the public is because we have spent lots of time investing in one another behind closed doors. See, the intimacy of any relationship is fostered behind closed doors. There are, there are conversations, there are prayers, there are things that have been done behind closed doors between my wife and I that no one will ever know about. And I know her, I gnosis her. And the reason why we have something strong in the public is because our commitment to the private. And some of you, man, you want to know God. You, you come here, you sing songs, you're in your church, you're trying to, to do all the right things. I want to know God, I want to know God. But then you keep hitting snooze on the alarm. Or you keep going to bed earlier. Or you keep finding Netflix more intriguing than the king of the universe. And you need to go home. Shut the door, open up his word, and know him. You need to go home and get on your face and begin to cry out to God and know him. And Paul says, oh, I, that I may know Jesus. And not only know him, but, but when you know Jesus, the benefits package is amazing. You know him, and Paul says, I want to know his power. Uh, do you know the power of God? Some of you, you come in here, man, I get it. I've, I've been there before. And you got this 10-year-old struggle that has been kicking your lunch, kicking your teeth, whatever, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Sorry, taking your lunch money. You got this 10-year-old struggle that has been kicking your teeth. And you come in here and it's like, it's so frustrating, right? Because you're not, you read about the power of God, but you're not experiencing the power of God. And oftentimes we think, okay, I just need like a dose of the Holy Ghost. You know, I just need a zap, you know, Tuesday power supply. I want you to imagine that if I called the electric company and I said, hey, hey, y'all got my payment in January, right? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, cool, well, well just, just cut us off for the rest of the year. We got the power we needed in January. Oh, okay. My wife would be like, what'd you do? Why, why, why isn't the stove working? Why isn't the blender working? Why don't we have any lights? Oh, baby, I, we, we got enough power in January. It's October. We're good now. No, that'd be crazy, right? But a lot of you, you treat God that way. I got, I got the power of God when I was at youth camp. I got the power of God when I was in college. I got the power of God when I went to church last Easter. I got the power of God when I went to that Bible study with those people. But I'm good now. No, we are daily dependent upon the power of God. That I wake up and I need the power company to send a fresh stream of power into my home so that I can accomplish the things that, that I need to accomplish in my home. It's no different spiritually. And we've got a power problem in the church because we're relying upon old power and the batteries are dead in the church. And we need to come back to God and say, God, fill me today. Like, I don't know about you, man. You ever been overwhelmed? Like, man, I'm just, I'm feeling overwhelmed in life. Got a lot of opportunity. You know, we call it opportunity. I'm, and I'm grateful for that. But it's in these seasons, man, where, where my margin runs thin. And so when, when my wife needs a little bit extra patience, I ain't got it. When my, when my kids need a little extra time, I ain't got it. 
And I'm overwhelmed with opportunity, and I'm grateful for that. But opportunity, and when I'm overwhelmed, causes me to get on my knees. And so I find myself like, God, I can't make it today unless you give me some power. And the reason why some of you don't know him or know his power is because you try to do life on your own. And I implore you, if you claim to follow Jesus, get on your knees tonight. Put your face into the ground. Humble yourself and say, God, would you give me the power I need so that I can struggle unto victory? Because the struggle's real, y'all. But God wants you to have liberty and victory. He goes on and he says this, you want, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. That Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you got to pick up your cross. And that wasn't like a, a necklace. That, that wasn't a tattoo. That was a, an instrument of torture. you got to pick up your cross and follow me. You're going to have to suffer a little bit. There was a missionary, a pastor in Romania before the Iron Curtain fell named Richard Vernbrand. And one day, it was the last Sunday school class that he was able to teach. He took about 10 or 15 teenagers to the zoo. And he stood them up in front of the lion's cage. And he, he told him this, he said, your forefathers in faith were thrown before such wild beasts for their faith. He said, know that also you will have to suffer. He said, you won't be thrown before lions, but you will have to suffer at the hands of men who would be much worse than lions. And he said, decide here and now if you wish to pledge your allegiance to Christ. And he said, they had tears in their eyes when they said, yes. You may not be beaten up for your faith, but you may be rejected. You may not be thrown to some lions, but you may have to say no to some fun. You, you may not have to suffer a great deal. There's more martyrs today than ever in the, the course of Christian history. That may not be you, but you may have to reconcile and overcome yourself and offer forgiveness. What are you suffering for the sake of Christ? And Paul, his conclusion in verse 11 is, if by all any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul's like, man, I'm so fired up about what I get. Like the reason why Paul can consider all these things rubbish is because his eye is fixed, not on the, not downplaying ice cream and family and all those things, not downplaying those things, but he's like, I get Christ. And he's so excited. I mean, when Paul speaks of the, the resurrection, he's like, he'll say things like, if there was no resurrection, man, I've wasted my life. But if there is, every sacrifice was worth it. The resurrection is simply the news that Jesus is alive. And the news that Jesus is alive proves that all of his promises are true. Like, like this one, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Isn't that crazy speak? That the worst thing that could happen to you if you believe in Jesus will only serve as the gardener that brings you to a resurrected life. And with the enemy intended for evil, God will work it for good if you gain him. That work doesn't work because Jesus has he's done all the work. There was this concentration camp in Germany called Auschwitz. It was the most notorious concentration camp in the Great War, or World War II, excuse me. And, and above this concentration camp, there was this phrase in German 
It said, Auerbach macht freight. And translated in English, it meant work sets you free. And so you imagine being, being a Jew getting ushered into this camp, and every day you see an Outback Macfrey. If I work hard enough, I'll get free. But it was all a hoax. No one got away. But they were there under the illusion that if they worked hard enough, they would be liberated. And this is a picture of this world that we've been brought up in. That it's a concentration camp of sorts. There will be suffering. And there's this lie that looms over the, the horizon of this earth that says if you work enough, you can earn your salvation. It's a lie. It's the lie of religion, so we need to lose religion. Work doesn't work. We need somebody to come set us free. And the good news is he's come. But what's crazy, imagine Auschwitz, work sets you free. A liberator comes in, the Russians, they, they liberated these, these people suffering. Imagine the Russians come in and they're, they're like, you're free, you're free. And somebody says, no, I'm still working. No, 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 you're free. You're free. No, no, I, got, I, I, I still got to work. No, 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 you don't understand. You're, you're free. Like, it's, it's time to go. Like, you don't, you, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm working. No, you can't work to earn your freedom. We've come to set you free. No, I'm good. I'm good. You be like, that's crazy, right? But week after week, some of you come here, and the liberator has come to set you free. And maybe you're not outright saying, you know what, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want to be liberated. Because I think you do deep down inside. You may not be saying, I don't want to be liberated, but you're saying, you know what, I need to think about it. Well, I see other people going to freedom, but I don't know if I can trust, trust you. I'm going to work a little bit more. And how sad would it be if they were set free, but they stayed in the camp and died? Come find freedom. Work doesn't work. Jesus has done the work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that it's true. God, help, help my words not tarnish the beauty of the gospel. Help me not feel so compelled to add so many words to your word. It's sufficient. There is no other name by which men are saved other than the name of Jesus. We thank you for that, God. And Father, I pray for the, my friends here tonight that you would help them uh, just to see that. God, you'd give them a glimpse of the sun and they would quit being satisfied with a nightlight. God, you'd give them a, a sense of, your, your, of awe when they hear the, the roar of thunder and see the brightness of lightning. And no longer be content with fading fireworks. Help them see the majesty of Christ. And they'd bet the farm tonight. In Christ's name I pray.